Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you guys. Uh, as you know, I was, um, other folks from the church were uh, in London last week for the start of Reality London. And I just want to say to you, church, congratulations and good job. We birthed another one to the glory of God. Amen. <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was really a great experience to be there. Everything went off well. Pastor Tim did well, and the whole team did well. It's fun. There's a whole team from Reality Carp that has moved there, and they're serving. They're playing in the worship team, running sound, running keynote, uh, set up and tear down. It was fun to see our people over there serving in London, and uh, it, it went well. We had 206 people show up for the first Sunday, which in Europe is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, it's for that culture to have that turnout in the very center of downtown London was pretty astounding. So obviously there was an, a number of people there supporting. We're thinking maybe 50 or 60 people that were just there for the first Sunday to say hurrah, praise God. And uh, we'll, we'll find out how it went the following week. Maybe nobody came and it was just a good one-shot thing. <laughs> Go out on a high note, Costanza that thing. No problem. Um, so anyways, I just want to say good job to you guys. We prayed for a long time. There's a lot of work. We partnered with the rest of the Reality family in birthing that church together. And uh, not because of us, but in spite of us, by grace and for God's own glory, Reality London is now a thing. So good job, church. Proud of you guys and the effort that you put in for that. If you have been here for very long at all, you know that that's one of the callings on us as a church is to birth other churches. Uh, if you're new here, that may be news to you. But from this little church in Carpinteria, we have uh, birthed Reality Los Angeles, Reality Stockton, Reality San Francisco, Reality Boston, now Reality London, Reality Honolulu coming up, Reality Santa Barbara, Reality Ventura, all from this silly little church. It's unbelievable um, by God's grace, again, and for God's glory. Uh, it's a privilege for us to be involved in those things. Now that London is planted, we're going to shift some of our attention toward Honolulu and getting that going. It'll start about a year from now. Zoe, who's leading worship today, is uh, Pastor Ryan's wife and their, our church planning team together along with others. So exciting time for us. It's also wonder, wonderful for us when our church planners come home for a little bit to visit uh, that's a joy. You know, God has given us the, church, the metaphor, excuse me, of birthing churches uh, because it's rich relationally and it, it better represents the work that goes into it and then the love connection that there is um, because of that birthing process. So we kind of view those church plants as, as kids of ours, right? And, and when one of our church planting pastors comes home, it's, it's like a son returning to us. And uh, Pastor Dave Lomas is one of my best friends in the whole world. He was our church planning pastor and is still the lead pastor at Reality San Francisco. Reality San Francisco started in January of 2010 from this church. It's now the largest evangelical church in the city of San Francisco. And um, more than the size, though, because that doesn't necessarily mean that much. They are doing a really, really good, faithful work in that city of uh, following Jesus and representing his purposes there. So I'm really happy to have one of my best friends in the world, our beloved son, Pastor Dave Lomas, here to preach this morning. Give him big love. Hello, family. Gosh, it's really good to be home. I guess a son coming home like... Prodigal son, or I don't know what you meant by that, but um, great, it's good to be here. Um, gosh, you know, when I am able to come back um, and re 
like kind of just talk about what things that are going on in San Francisco. I want you guys to know, as you guys were involved in praying for, uh, for Reality San Francisco and financially giving and supporting and even sending some of your best people there to help us plant the church, all that to your eternal credit, like you get, like that's treasure that you laid up in heaven before you that you get um, credit in heaven for. And that's a really amazing thing. We, I don't think we think about that enough where Jesus tells us to almost lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, pay it forward, like go ahead and go, I'm, I'm giving sacrifice now because I know there's going to be a reward in heaven for this. And this church, Reality San Francisco, is to your eternal credit. And there is, God's doing a great thing for that church. And it's to your credit. So well done. Thank you. Um, keep praying for us. I know that you guys come and visit and you come forward and Say, we're praying for this church. Anyway, it's just a great thing. Um, today, I want to teach a teaching called Redemptive Participation. And it, it's really, it comes out of the book of Daniel. And it's Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to read some of D- Jeremiah chapter 29 and some of Daniel chapter 6 this morning before we get started with this sermon. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Jeremiah 29 and to Daniel 6? Maybe keep a ribbon or a finger in both of those. If you have a device, maybe turn your device there or whatever you use to read your Bible. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read from the NIV. If you have NIV, follow along. If you do not, maybe close your eyes and just follow along mentally um, so you don't get all confused. Like, that verse doesn't say that, but it does. So, Jeremiah 29, I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read a letter from Jeremiah that Jeremiah wrote to Daniel the prophet and to the people that were in exile that Daniel read Uh, himself to frame how he was to live in Babylon. So I'll start with Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon, and then I'll read from Daniel, one of the exiles in Babylon, what happened, like an account that happened in Daniel chapter 6. You with me? Cool. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what it says. This is the letter that was set ahead to the exiles in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, which three administrators, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king may not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went, to, went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. And the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or any or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown in the den of lions. 
Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be replaced, repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to you or any God or any human being except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be replaced, repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you have put in writing, he still prays three times a day. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this, um, this text of scripture this morning, and we pray that by it we would be transformed by the power of your spirit to become more like you as salt and light in this world in this day and age in which you've called us to live. And Lord, we ask, I ask, I just submit all of my capacities to you, my mind and my heart. I, I just, I really want to be just really in flow with what your spirit wants to do this, this gathering. And we submit ourselves into the power of your word and the authority of it, and we ask that you would teach us. We love you, Lord. Minister to us now by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I won't exposit the text, this, this text today. I want to use this Daniel passage. By the way, if you know the end of the story, Daniel goes to the lion's den. Spoiler alert, and he survives, but that's a whole, that's not the sermon. Um, I want to use this as a like launching pad to talk about how to be a redemptive participant in our culture. But we have to do a little background. Daniel was about 70 years old at, the point, at this point in the story. He was taken captive um, to Babylon as a teenager When he was a teenager, Babylon took over, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, and took the best and the brightest that Israel had to offer. And and Nebuchadnezzar took these men into the king's service. Daniel and his three friends were some of these men. And at this point, when he was a teenager, he was probably 14, 15 years old, as a teenager, made a decisive action in his heart that charted the course of the rest of his life to where he's 70 years old and they, have, they can find nothing against him. And that thing he did was he said, as a teenager, I will not, and I think you call teenagers groms here, so as a, is that right, groms? So as a, like a young boy, he, 14 or 15, purpose in his heart, I will not sin against Yahweh. When they're making me eat from the king's table and all get strong by all the protein and the meat and the wine from the king's table, I'm not going to defile. Daniel said this as a teenager. I will not defile myself that way. At 14, 15 years old, I will not eat from the king's table. So he goes up to the person who's in charge of him and says, hey, could I live off vegetables? Can me and my friends live off vegetables? And the guy goes, you can't live off vegetables and be strong. Like this was before Vitamix, okay? This is before like chia seeds and all that other stuff. Like, this was, like, in the day of leeks. So vet, think leeks. He's eating leeks. You can't just live off leeks and be strong like these men living off of meat and bread and cheese and wine. You won't be that strong. And Daniel goes, just, just try us. Just let, just let us try this out. 
And he, at, the, at 14 years old, had to put his complete dependence on Yahweh. God, I need you to act here. I'm going to do something that's crazy. I want to be dependent upon you. So every time I eat, three times a day I eat, I'm remembering that Yahweh gives me strength. Yahweh gives me strength. Yahweh gives me strength. That one's 15 years old. And at 15 years old, he charted the course of his life to where when he's 70 years old, and they're, trying, they're like filtering through his Facebook account, filtering through his finances, like we find nothing wrong with this guy. The only way we're going to charge him is if we find something wrong with, when, it, when it pertains to him worshiping his God. We have to make prayer illegal. That's the only way to catch him. What did Daniel do? Like what, how did Daniel live this sort of life? This is kind of what I want to, um, the question I want to think through this morning. What gave Daniel... The strength, the vision, the fortitude, the resolve, and resilience to live in Babylon as a faithful witness to God and as a good citizen of Babylon over a lifetime. What gave Daniel the strength, a teenager all the way into his 70s, the strength, the vision, the fortitude, even the resolve and the resilience to live that long through Babylon to where he was faithful to Yahweh, but not just faithful to Yahweh, he was faithful as a good citizen in Babylon, the, the the nation that destroyed his people, that ransacked his temple. How did Daniel stay faithful to both Yahweh and as a citizen of Babylon in exile? How did he do that? That's what I want to talk about this morning. But to begin to answer that question, I have to back up a bit. I have to talk about what exile is. Exile, okay? So write that word down if you're taking notes. Exile and write a question mark. What is that? Um, this is important. This is an important concept to grasp. But you might know what this word means. Exile basically means you are not home. You're living in a foreign land. Now, this is important to understand what exile means because the New Testament says that the people of God today, the followers of Jesus today, live in exile. If you've ever read the book of First, a letter of First Peter, it's clear that the people of God, the Christians today, live in exile. So what we can learn from Daniel is actually how we're to live exilic, how we're to live in exile today, how we're to live this sort of life. Daniel lived in exile, and I think it's important to understand what living in exile means. So, as we back up, let me do a little survey of the Old Testament, okay? You guys awake? You guys are at 10.30. I assume you're awake. You slept in, right? A little survey of the Old Testament. And the way I want to survey the Old Testament is through people and land, okay? So, Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named, what's his name? Abraham. Abram, Abraham, Right? And he makes Abraham a promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bring you into a land and I will be with you. And I will, I will. It keeps on saying that throughout the passage. I will, I will, I will, I will. He promises Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a land and make you a nation, a people. You're not a people now. You're just a dude. You're a barren dude. You and your wife can't have kids. But I'm going to multiply your descendants and your descendants are going to grow to become a nation. And I'm going to give your nation a land. So, These movements of the Old Testament, next slide, is the Old Testament and life in the land. There's two ways to look at life in the land in the Old Testament. Promised land and exile. Promised land and exile, okay? The first movement we see in the the Torah is promised land. And the promised land paradigm starts in Exodus and goes all the way to the period of the kings. Starts in Exodus goes to the period of the kings. It starts when the children of Israel are in bondage to Egypt and they're enslaved in Egypt. And God punishes Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and he delivers his people while crushing the enemy, right? 
the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Salvation is from our God. That's the first song ever written in the Bible. And it was right after Israel passed through the Red Sea and God caused the Red Sea to collapse on, on Pharaoh and his army and the horse and rider are thrown in the sea. God is the God of salvation. God brings our salvation. He's rescued us. God radically rescues Israel. And when he rescues Israel, he gives them his presence right on top of Mount Sinai. And he gives them a law and he leads them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as he's leading the children of Israel, he's making Israel into a nation. So as Israel is wandering, he creates a nation out of Israel. He gives them law and order. He gives them economy. He gives them rules of farming and how, to, how they're to keep their land to where when they go into the promised land, when they cross over Jordan and make their way in the promised land, they know how to live and operate. God is moving Israel from being slaves to becoming the dominant culture in, in the land. The dominant culture. And so God gives them victories over their enemies. They, they, when they cross over through Joshua, they go and they take the land. And the whole reason why they're to take the land and set up a nation there is so they can be a light to the world. That's the only reason. When God t- told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a nation and a people and a land, he says, I'm going to bless you so that through you I will bless the world. So I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to cause your people to be a nation. And then on Sinai, he gives them all the law and all the covenant, and this is how you're to live in a relationship with me, so that you are a light to the world. And so they are. They become a dominant culture. They get a king. They get a temple. They get a palace. Israel is a legitimate nation. They have an army. And the whole purpose is that they could be, they could be a light to the world. Is everybody with me? You with me? Okay, so that's a huge movement in the story of God. But then there's this dramatic shift. And, and this dramatic shift, actually, this shift happens, and the people of God from this dramatic shift onward, the people of God onward are still in exile. The dramatic shift is the exile paradigm. And at this, due to Israel's disobedience, for generations, they're taken into exile. The temple is destroyed. The people are captured. Majority of Israel is made to live under the rule of another nation. They have another dominant culture that is ruling over them where the way of life and the way of law and the way they are to treat the land is vastly different than life in the promised land. The way they lived after promised land, they had to live in exile, is a completely different way of living. They were, in essence, strange people in a strange land. The way they lived in exile changed dramatically from the way they lived in the promised land. So Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles that are in Babylon. And he's giving them divine instruction on how to live life being faithful to God in Babylon until God restores all things. Until the day God restores all things, this is how you are to live. Okay? So, exile versus promised land. So what's my point? My point is this. The book of Daniel won't have, and this sermon, really, won't have formative power in our lives until we come to grips with the reality that we are exiles and we are not in the promised land. We do not live in the promised land. I say that, and you're going, yeah, 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 we don't live in the promised land. But that's actually not as easy as you think. The promised land paradigm has been deeply formative to our nation. And still very much is. This paradigm is about people who left where they were from, from around the world, to come to America for the promised land opportunity, the promised opportunity of a better life. 
people still come from all over the world to America for this very reason. And under our nation's ideology, God is the one who is the giver of all blessings of our nation. We say, God bless America. And so, in this promised land thinking, we believe that progress will make a better life. That we, as Americans, will move forward and make a better life for citizens all over the world. I'm from, a, I'm from an area called Silicon Valley, like San Francisco, Silicon Valley area. And we think technology is going to make our future. And we believe in the progress of technology no matter what. No matter who we enslave, no matter what we do to the environment, no matter how we treat animals. We want technology and we want progress. And so we gentrify. We gentrify cities, we be, build better homes, we build better cars, we move to the suburbs so it's quiet, or we move to the city if we can afford to live the way we want to live. In promised land world, we try to create a perfect world to live in. We try to create a subculture that keeps me safe from harm. We try to live in a way where, where we, we take from our lives people that would kill our vibe. We don't like being around people that bum us out or ruin perfect lives for our kids. And so when, we, when the filth of a city makes us sick, not because it breaks God's heart, but because it bums us out. We're walking, we're having a good day, we smell urine, we're like, ew, I'm so bummed out, I hate this, this is so horrible. And we think we, we want like a, a better neighborhood, backyard, possibly a view, cleaner streets, walkable coffee places, burritos, eat burritos that don't make us fat, like do you use whole wheat tortillas here? And quinoa, good. This is the way I want to be eating. And we slip, all of us, slip into promised land thinking, especially in Carpinteria, because this place is as close to perfect living as it gets. When you say the land of milk and honey, you're like, Carpinteria or Old Testament Israel? Like, what, what are you talking about again? Like, this place, are you kidding me? They just announced from the stage, Sean announced, oh, and people left keys behind. Who leaves their keys? Like, you haven't had your keys in four days because you don't lock your doors. That's why. You don't, how, raise your hand if you don't lock your doors. A lot, a lot of you guys don't lock your doors. When my wife and I are driving around here and we parked into our place and I rolled the windows down and turned the car off, she goes, oh, you left the windows down. I'm like, I know, it's carp. She goes, oh yeah, it's carp. I'm like, yeah, it's just, it feels like promised land here, like perfect living. There's no place on earth, earth that feels like this. I'm from like Bakersfield and San Francisco. Trust me, this is like the promised land here. I mean, when you walk, I get here, I wake up in the morning and it smells like, like the air smells like nectar and tar and it's beautiful. It smells so good. And this, it feels like the promised land here. The weather feels like the promised land. Everything, like people I was driving with this week, they like leave their keys in their center console to their car. Like they don't even take the key. They, they like get in their car, open the center console, turn the, I'm like, what is, what is this? Like I'm used to, you leave just a car charger in your car and someone smashes your window for it. Like, that's like the paradigm I'm working with. And, and it feels very much like, almost like perfect living here. Now, why do I say this? I'm not, I, believe me, I'm not, I'm not harping on you because this place is perfect. I want, I want you to listen and, and hear me. This feels like the promised land, but this is not the promised land. This is not the kingdom of God. That is still yet to come. You are not home yet. This is not the promised land. You, with all your surrounding beauty and your comfort, this might feel like home, but you are not home. You, my friend, are in exile. You are in exile. It might not feel like exile to you. 
you are in exile still. And you are called to live a different kind of life here in exile. Don't get too comfortable here. It's easy to get comfortable here. It feels so right here. I cannot wait to retire here at 39 in a year. It's going to be really great. (laughs) But you are from a better country here in this country to bring the shalom of that better country to bear on this country. You are from a better country, even better than this land here. You're from a better one, and you're to bring the principles, the kingdom, the life, the love, the light, the truth to bear onto this country. Jeremiah puts it like this. And again, this is the shift of ideology. This is a shift of thinking for the people of Israel. And they were to think like this now for until Messiah came. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. This is a whole different paradigm than the Joshua paradigm. Because it sh- things have shifted now. They're in exile. And so Jeremiah says, live differently in the land. I want you to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city which I've carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its peace, and you will find your peace. I want you to be so tied to the economics and the life and, and, the, and the, the wrongs that are happening in, in Babylon to where when it's prosperous, you are prosperous. But when it's in despair, you're in despair. I want you to tie your life to the life of that city. This is a huge movement in the story of God. He says to people like Daniel living in Babylon, Daniel living in Babylon, You are not in the promised land anymore, Daniel. You are in exile. And I put you there, and I want you to seek the shalom of that city. Pray for Babylon. Seek its shalom. If that city has peace, you will have peace. See, exile living is a completely different way of living than promised land living. It's a different way of thinking about life. It demands something of God's people that's completely unlike promised land vision. Exile people know they don't live in the promised land and they are not promised a perfect life on this earth. Exile people exist for something else. Exile people know we live in a world of tremendous need where people were meant to be, as people were meant to be representatives of a different kind of life, a different kind of hope, a different set of hopes, a different vision of what it means to be human, a different capacity to love. And when we live with this understanding, and we meet a person that is hard to love, or we face the impossible situation in our city that is causing so much heartache and violence in our nation, we don't think, I have to get out of here. This city, this nation is going down the toilet. We don't think that way because we're exiles. We think like this, no, no, no. It is to this very reason I have been called here. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I am supposed to show up to love in unexpected ways with wisdom and hope that's not from this world. This is, the, this, is, this is the way Daniel lived. This is the way he lived in Babylon until he was almost like 70 years old. And how did he do it? And how are we to do it? How did Daniel, next slide, redemptively participate as a citizen of Babylon? How did he do that? How did he, how did he redemptively engage and participate as a citizen of Babylon? That's, that, that question there is what I want to spend the remainder of our time doing. What did it look like for Daniel to seek the shalom of Babylon? First, you can write this down if you're taking notes. How do we redemptively participate in our culture? How did Daniel, how do we? Redemptive participation has to be rooted in non-participation. This is a very important point. Redemptive participation has to be rooted. The bedrock of redemptive participation in our culture is learning where do we disengage from our culture. Where do we non-quietly, sometimes quietly, sometimes not so quietly, non-opt out and say, no, 
I, we will not participate in, our cult, in the way that, that our culture does this. This, in the book of Daniel, it looks like this. It looks like in Daniel chapter uh, 1, Daniel and his friends saying, eat this food, and Daniel going, I don't want to participate in that. Because that would be, for me, would be sin. That is, for us as followers of Yahweh, that would be sin, so we're not going to participate in that. It's in Daniel chapter 3 when Daniel's friends are brought before this golden idol statue and told to bow down when the music played, and they didn't like tweet about it. They didn't like hashtag not bowing down, not going to do it. They didn't do any of that. They just said, we just were not going to show up. And then they're brought before the king, and the king says, bow down to this idol. We're like, we're not here to argue. We're just not going to bow down. Well, then we're going to throw you in the fire. Okay. Let's go. Our God, even if our, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We're, just, we're not participating in this. Sorry. It looks like that. It looks like Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, when it's illegal to pray, Daniel's like, I'm not going to participate in not praying. I'm going to pray. But it's against a lot of pray. Yeah, I know. That's fine. I'll go in the lion's den. My God's able to save me. You have to know at what point of our culture do we, do we opt out and go, I'm not going to participate in that law. I'm not going to participate in that cultural ideology. I'm not going to participate in that, that cultural way of thinking, of way of being. It looks like this. I read a great book called Artists, Citizens, and Philosophers Seeking the Peace of a City earlier this year. And he says it like this. He says, intentional disengagement from the dominant culture is, necess- is the necessary precondition for meaningful engagement of that same dominant culture. So what he's saying is, you have to first learn how to disengage from a dominant culture if you're actually going to engage rightly in that same dominant culture. If you actually are going partic- to redemptively participate in this culture, you have to find ways to go, I will not engage. And so what we have to think about we live in radical American individualism, right? We live in radical American consumerism where we just buy stuff and we don't care where, who's made it or where it came from, where we just love being individuals and the expression of our own personal selves is the most important thing. It, for us to bring the peace of God to bear on our radical individualistic consumeristic culture, we, they, we have to think of ways that we're not going to participate in the consumerism of our nation. We have to think about ways that we're not going to participate in the indiv- radical individualism of our nation, where we're going to disengage from those things. And what this is called is fidelity and piety, or the biblical word is holiness. And you know, I really believe that the Spirit of God might be stirring something in you right now. It might be so simple, but he, there's something in your mind, heart, he's stirring. It's like, stop participating in that thing. Stop doing that. It's getting out of control. You know it is. You, you know your witness is being like diluted by doing that. Stop doing that. And I trust the Spirit of God is working on you right now. Because there's all kinds of ways that we can either collectively as a church go, this is the way we're not going to participate, or personally going, this is the way I'm not going to participate. If we're going to engage, we have to first disengage. As people whose loyalty lies with Jesus Christ, I think where we have to start, if you're taking notes, is sex, money, and power. That's where we have to start. We will not use sex the way that our culture uses sex, as a commodity. We do not see it as a commodity. We see it as a covenant. So we will not use sex the way our culture uses sex. We will not use money the way our culture uses money. We will not use power the way our culture uses power. The, like if, if, we, if we just did this, especially the money and, and sex thing, like if we became people who were like financially promiscuous, can you imagine being financial? Like you can't keep your wallet in your pants, that sort of thing. Like every single, thing about that. Every single time there's a need, you're like, what, there's a need? 
I can't keep it. Here, take the, Like you were financially promiscuous, that you were spreading your money everywhere, but you were sexually pious. They wouldn't know what to do with you. No one, like if you walked into a place like, if you know you're sexually promiscuous, people are like, yeah, that's kind of our culture. If you're like, no, I actually am not sexually promiscuous. I'm financially promiscuous, so I give away my money everywhere. <laughs> I, I, I just can't keep my wallet in my pants. Like who has a need? I want to, if you did that, they would not know what to do with you. They just don't want to do with you. They're like, whoa, wait, wait. I mean, this, by the way, this was the early church. We have a, an epistle of Dionysus that says, um, the Christians, they share their beds with no one, but their tables with everyone. They're like, we don't know what to do with them. They don't, they don't open their beds to everyone. We, everyone's sharing beds here, but they're not. But their table, their generosity, their hospitality is open to everyone. We don't know what to do with these people. If we live this sort of life, it, people wouldn't know what to do with Christians. Like, well, you guys are radically generous, and you guys live this way. You live with, with like, piety and decency when it comes to sexuality. Like, this is, a, this is powerful non-participation here. Many Christians today lack the power for any meaningful engagement in our culture because we don't really know what separates us from our culture. We have been colonized by our culture, and therefore we're not, we don't, we're not a prophetic voice anymore into our culture. There's nothing that makes us strange anymore that causes people to question or ask questions about us. What do you do that's different? What do you believe that's different? I believe it has to start here. Sex, money, power. That's how the church subverted Rome. Daniel lived this particular life inside the halls of power in Babylon for most of his life. He saw three different kings and two different kingdoms pass through the rule in Babylon. And under the rule of Darius in chapter 6, we see that Daniel had such practiced faithfulness to God that the only way to accuse Daniel was to try to destroy his life by making his faithfulness to God illegal. Think about that. Like, what's the only way we can catch you? Well, we have to make your faith illegal. He turned three times a day in prayer his whole life, and he fixed his mind every day, his heart and his attentions on God every single day. He had like a fixed way of living. It says in verse 10, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Why are the windows open toward Jerusalem? When Israel lived in exile, they were to to direct their minds and their bodies, their minds, their hearts, and their bodies toward Jerusalem, lest they forget Jerusalem. And they would have a prayer, may we never forget Jerusalem. May we never, may my hand be cut off if I forget Jerusalem. And so they would turn their minds, they would turn their hearts, and they would turn their physical bodies toward Jerusalem because this is what they were saying. The kingdom, the king is coming to his kingdom and he's gonna set up his rule and reign in Jerusalem and a kingdom is coming and a kingdom is promised and we have to remember that. We set our gaze toward Jerusalem. We, as followers of Jesus, are taught something very similar by our Lord Jesus. He said, seek first the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Set your minds and your hearts on heaven. When he said, when the disciples said, would you teach us how to pray? He said, pray like this. Our Father who's in heaven. What's the beginning of that prayer? Orient your mind, your heart, maybe even your body towards heaven. Our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what you're doing is this. You're setting your mind, your heart, and your body towards God who's in heaven, reminding yourself that's where God is, that's where God lives, that's where his kingdom's coming. And would you bring that to bear here? So may it be in the coastlands as it is in heaven. Bring it to bear here. This is a kingdom-oriented prayer. This is like gets our minds and our hearts like oriented towards the kingdom of God. We're taught this. We need this, we need this kind of orientation. Daniel had it three times a day. Recently, um, my wife and I traveled to um, Kauai, which is the other promised land on the world. And um, we, we were there in July, and then we spent some time in Kauai together, and then went to London for the prayer tour. And we were with each other the whole time. We lived, when we were in Kauai in London, we lived very intentionally with holy intent. It was like everything we did, we did it with holy intent. It was like we ate mangoes with holy intent. You'd eat mangoes like, to the glory of God. Thank you, God, for this. And you would eat, like everything would be saturated with holy, and everything we did was with holy intent. We would seek God together in the mornings. We'd spend hours on the little lanai of our of our condo, and we would read a book together and talk about it and pray together and what, what God's been doing in our hearts over this last season and where, where God's leading us. And it was just, and we, then we went to London right after that. And we went to London, woke up in the morning, did devotionals, prayer walk through the city, ministered within and to the Chattics, like our, was seeking the peace and the shalom of London. We, and my wife and I came alive. Like Ash was, like her, she was woke. I was, our eyes were open. Our eyes were open to each other. Our eyes were open to the kingdom of God. Our eyes were open to what God was doing. And we'd wake up and we'd be in sync and we would roll with the punches and the things that would get us angry didn't get us angry. And we were going through our day going, we're living with holy intent. And it was incredible. Then we got home. You get, come on, you guys know this story. You get home and it took eight days. Eight days, I counted. Eight days before we both got back into full-time work and the life was almost like sucked out of us where we woke up just to get through our day just so we can come home again that night have a meal and go to sleep and then do it all over again it took eight days of this this is not like i know you has anyone been there by the way anyone this is why we need this almost what daniel had is fixed our prayer morning noon night and you guys, oh, that's so religious. Oh, is it? How's, it, how's your thing working for you? <laughs> How, how's it going? Daniel, was, Daniel lived as a teenager until he was 70, and they still couldn't find anything wrong with it. Like, how is your thing working? His worked really well. Like, he fixed his mind, his heart, his body on Yahweh three times a day. You can say religiously. I don't care what you say. I call it a practice. And it was a practice of orienting all of his intention, all of his heart towards God. Every single day day to where when he was 70 years old the only thing that can they, they can do was to make a law that made that illegal we need this i need this i was living with holy intent for a while and i want it back and i think the way to get it back is starting to to daily several times a day orient my heart but this wasn't just prayer as like practice this was prayer as resistance this was prayer as resistance look at look what it says in daniel six ten again now, when, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he, went, he got on his knees and prayed. 
As soon as it was published, he got on his knees and prayed. I think that when, the, when it was signed, he was like, and he got like a text, whatever. It's signed or whatever. I think he went upstairs, and when he pushed open the windows, he kind of pushed them up with a little bit more force that day. He just went out, and it's just a little bit more, just opened them up, and they just like slammed open. He's like, I'm, this is resistance. I'm praying because Babylon's not my God. Yahweh's my God. My practices of following Yahweh are not going to be thwarted by law. I will follow my God. He followed his practices, his spiritual practices, with tenacity and rebellion. I will pray. I don't care if it's illegal. I'm devoted to my God. I wonder how easy it is for our schedule to bump off our spiritual practices. How easy is it for your life to bump off your... It doesn't even take law for us. It just takes a shift in schedule. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually pretty lame, guys. Like, it doesn't take, like, the, you know, the laws change. You can't do that anymore. Oh, and all it takes is like, oh, you have to be at work a little earlier. Oh, there goes my prayer life. That's kind of what happens to us. I, I, I couldn't go to worship with the people of God today because I had this other commitment. I, I couldn't pray because I had to be at work early. I couldn't be generous to that missionary this year because I had to pay off this debt. Or like, the, the weather's really nice. I don't know if I want to do that thing. Like, it doesn't even take law for us. It just takes a nice day for us sometimes. That's what it takes to bump us off a of spiritual practice. The spiritual practices of prayer and Sabbath keeping and fasting and generosity and Sunday worship are acts of resistance. There are ways that you and I look at our nations and our world's gods and say, you are not my God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my God, and I'm devoted to him. There's actually a great book called Sabbath as Resistance. It's like, I will take a day off as an act of resistance because I am not a slave to my job. I'm an arrest because I'm not the one that makes the world turn around. God makes the world turn around. And I will rest for a day and let God do what God does. And it's an act of resistance. It's a great title of a great book. These, are the practices, these practices are actually seedbed for the life of redemptive participation in our world. Again, artists, citizens, and philosophers says this. The church is God's body in the world. It is present to bring about the well-being, the shalom of the city where it dwells. The advice of Jeremiah to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city in which it lives is not a call for passivity. It's not just, oh, we're going to pray and just be passive. No, no, no. It, to let God act while the church waits and watches. No, no. Genuine prayer requires becoming intoxicated, consumed by God, becoming so filled with the Spirit of God that the church can become an agent of God's action in the world. To pray genuinely to God for the welfare of the city is to yearn with all one's heart for its well-being. To pray means to weep with God when the city chooses the way of death, to pronounce judgment, to yearn for, urge, and then act with the compassion of God that the city may choose the way of life. Prayer isn't just like, oh, hands folded, prayer. Prayer is resistance. Prayer is like getting so intoxicated by God, being your heart so in sync with God that it shoots you out into the world and to bring God's heart and God's life and God's truth to bear on the world. So how do we, how do, we do this here? So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of land this plane. So I'm not, I'm not closing. We're just going to descend, okay? You guys there, don't start folding your Bibles up or whatever. I'm going to try to get little, real practical. Very, very practical. I want to give you two paradigms to look through on how do we redemptively participate in our towns and cities. Two paradigms. The first is the paradigm of the book I've been quoting, Artists, Citizens, and Philosophers. And I think that we have to, we have to 
redemptively participate as philosophers, as citizens, and as artists. Okay, I'm not asking you to choose one. I'm saying you're all three. Everyone in here has to be all three. We have to move towards being a philosopher, a citizen, and an artist. Let me explain what I mean by that. First, philosopher. All of us, as followers of Jesus, should be philosophers, meaning that we love wisdom, especially the wisdom of God. We love the wisdom of God. And with the wisdom of God, we discern what is true and what is right and what is good and creatively bring that to bear on our culture. That means we don't rant on social media, that we, we go slow, and we're like, let's just see about the wisdom of God here, what God might want to say, what God might want to do. And you move slower. We need philosophers in business, people who love the wisdom of God in business, who will bring the wisdom of God to bear on a world driven by capitalism and consumerism. And these people need to work inside capitalism and inside consumerism to help people see what is right and good, not just profitable and successful. We need philosophers in tech. I heard that LinkedIn moved in just down the street recently. We need philosophers and people that love wisdom in tech that is thinking through not just what technology can do for us, but what technology is doing to us. That are helping people not just think what the public wants in technology, but how do we become the kind of people who want the right kind of thing in technology? We need philosophers there, and we need citizens. You need to be a citizen. You not only need to be a philosopher that loves wisdom and the wisdom of God, but a citizen. And as a citizen... In the coastlands, how do you exercise your responsibility in seeking the good and the flourishing of this community, the well-being of this community? We need to be citizens that tie our peace to the peace of our city. When, when the city is unrest, we're in unrest. And when we, we pray and then get to work that things might be right, we need to be citizens. But lastly, I think this is so important, we need to be artists. Meaning... Everyone in here, not if you just like, hey, I do art, I, I, I paint, whatever. I'm an artist, I write music. The, I, I wish I was you. You're like a really good artist, kind of artist. I'm, I'm not that. But everyone, all of us are, are called to be artists. And this is what I mean by that. What artists do is they go to the future and they imagine a better future and they bring that to bear on today. That's what they do. They imagine, either through tragedy or comedy or fairy tale, whatever they do, they imagine a different world, a better world, and they bring that world to bear on today. That's, that's what an artist does. Christians, followers of Jesus, need to be artists. We, ha- we have to do all of this work, philosophers and citizens, as artists. We have to be people that paint. We know the future, you guys. We know the kingdom of God that wants to, that God and Jesus, that Christ is breaking into our world. We know it. What we need to do is go there in our minds and our hearts and our souls and our bodies and then bring that back to bear beautifully on our world today. I can't think of a better example of this than Martin Luther King Jr. He was a philosopher. He was a true citizen. And, and as such, he imagined a better world and spoke into that, his world, with beauty. He expressed a cultural vision of an, uh, in an excellent way. His letter from a Birmingham jail and his I Have a Dream speech are flat-out works of art. He used poetry and image and metaphor and prophecy and gospel song in a way that captured the heart and the imagination to fight radical injustice of his day. We need people like him again in the church to rise up and bring the wisdom of God to bear beautifully on our world today. He says this in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He says, human progress never rolls in on wills of inevitability. 
It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. We have to, we must see and use time creatively. We have to, as artists, bring to bear the coming kingdom on this world in beautiful ways that capture the heart and the imagination. Earlier this year, I heard a podcast. It's a cultural podcast that talks about all kinds of music and movies and cultural things. And they were reviewing a record by a guy named Chance the Rapper. Okay, so it's an album that came out earlier this year. His name is uh, Chancellor. His rap name is Chance the Rapper. He's a rapper. And so if you're into hip-hop, you're with me. If you're not, just, just listen. It'll get good in a second. Um, I can't stop talking about this album ever since it came out. It is, I, I, I love it. So, it's so good. He's not, this is not a Christian album, though. I will warn you. There's a PG-13 rating on this album. Um, he's not, he, he's, he is a profess, professing Christian. This is not a Christian album. He, he, he's not even on a label. He released it with all these secular artists that are a part of this album. Um, this, but this album is so infused with the gospel. There's even a song. One of the last songs in the album is called Drown. And, um, and there's this uh, part in the song where it goes, um, like everything is everything, which is, uh, if, you know, if you know Lauren Hill, it's like a nod to Lauren Hill. Anyway, but if you're not, don't get tripped up on that. Like everything is everything. And then it says, like all them days he prayed with me, and he is capitalized. Like all them days that God prayed with me, then it says, like emptiness was tamed in me. All the days that God was with me, all the days that Christ interceded for me, emptiness was tamed in me, which is like one of the most emotionally pregnant verses in the whole album. Like emptiness was tamed in me, then it goes, and all that was left was his love, and all that was left was his love, and all that was left was his love. And then this gospel choir kicks in, and then just takes it where it needs to go. And it's a gospel song. And then Kirk Franklin, one of the most famous gospel artists, says, Chance, let me in. Like, Chance, tag me in. I want in. I need to say something. And so then he starts singing about how Jesus is the only one who can quench our thirst. This is the album, okay? That's released everywhere. So these guys were reviewing it. And I'm listening to it. These guys are not Christian. They're cultural critics. And this is what they said. It's not on the screen. This is his quote. This dude makes religion sound fantastic. I don't know if I have encountered that sort of relationship with something that I don't have in art that makes me envious of having it in that way. I listen to Chance rap about life, and he loves being a Christian, and I'm like, that sounds interesting. Maybe that's something to look into, and I did not expect to ever say that. And the other guy that's interviewing with him laughs nervously. Huh, I didn't really expect you to say that either. Like nervous, it got weird. And then he just said, he said, I really was moved by this album. I feel like I'm gaining my religion here. I'm really moved by this record. May God save that guy. This is what, we're ta- this is, this is what I'm talking about. Like we bring the beauty of art to bear on a world that makes them just like salt. Like I'm thirsty for that. I want that life relationship Whatever. And it might cause people to reject you like they did Daniel or cause people to want what you have like Chance the Rapper. That we as Christians need to be thinking creatively. So philosophers, citizens, artists. That's a great way to think about redemptive participation. Here's another way, and I'll close with this. It's from Henry Nouwen, his book called Life of the Beloved. He uses this paradigm in his book on the way of Jesus is this. Taken, blessed, 
broken, given. Taken, blessed, broken, given. And what Henry Nouwen says is that this here is the pattern of Christ and thus should be the pattern of the followers of Christ. And he says, this is the pattern that Jesus gave when he took, when he, he gave his followers communion. He said, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, took it, held it up to the sky, blessed it, broke it, said, this is my body, and he gave it, given for you. Taken, blessed, broken, given. He says, this is the pattern of Jesus, and thus, it is our pattern. This is the pattern of our Lord, and therefore, it is our pattern to live into, meaning church, Christian, you are given for the life of the world. You are not your own. You are given to be introduced into the world for the life of the world. You are like bread. You are like salt. You are like light. And what he means by taken, blessed, broken, and given, he's, you're taken by God, mean chosen. You are chosen by God. God has taken you, and he's saved your life from darkness to light, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. You are taken, chosen. You belong to God. But not only have you been taken or chosen by God, you are blessed by God. And the Abrahamic blessing goes like this. You, are, you have been blessed so that you can be a blessing. God has blessed you. And all these kind of ways that you might not even been able to tap into yet. But you've been blessed so that you can be a blessing. And then you're broken. Guys, your frailties and your sufferings are kind of what make you, you. We don't, as Christians, try to cover up our imperfections and flaws. In some beautifully perfect way, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that it's through the brokenness of our lives that the surpassing greatness of Christ shines. Like the cracks and the brokenness in our lives let the light out and show that the power is from God and not from us. And so there is a breaking that happens in the Christian life for the life of the world. And lastly, we're given. My seminary professor would say placed. Just like Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, you were placed in the coastlands. You're placed here. You were placed here so that you can be salt and light in the world, that your life can be for the life of the world. A few months ago, a friend of mine sent me a book he found on his travels. He's a set designer in Hollywood, and he has to pop into all these obscure stores in his travel to find set props. And he found a book from the 1950s, and it's called The Crusade at the Golden Gate. Here's a picture of it. That's Billy Graham. He's not that big. Um, that's like a <laughs> clip art thing. That's like Godzilla right there. Like, all right. um, so he's not that big, uh, or the Golden Gate's not that small, or whatever. Um, but this is a book written on a crusade that I didn't even knew existed or happened until I was given this book. Billy Graham did a crusade in 1958, and the center of the crusade was right across the street from where our offices are. Like, that, anyway, that's, it was, it's, anyway, so the, the writer for the SF Examiner, who's also a minister, wrote a book on the crusade. And in the opening chapter of this book here, he writes about San Francisco, he calls it the place, and the spiritual climate of SF during the 50s, and what it was like to be a Christian in San Francisco and what the church was like culturally. And he says this, quote, Nearly every other sizable city in America has been born out of a strong Christian witness which has helped to shape the city's character. No matter how perverse the elements that later crept in, our American cities, by and large, have never been able to completely shake off their heritage. But San Francisco has never known that kind of ordered Christian conscience. Thus, 
St. Francis gave his name, but never his spirit, to the brawling young city. St. Francis, we're called San Francisco, St. Francis City. We have his name, but not his spirit. We don't have the way of St. Francis. Now, I don't, that's what he was saying in the 50s. I mean, that was the 50s before, like, the Summer of Love, the Church of Satan started there, like, all that stuff. And I don't know how true that is, that he didn't lend his spirit to San Francisco. But I know that I have the opportunity, as a citizen of San Francisco, to step into the way of St. Francis in my city. And you have an opportunity in the coastlands to also step into the way of St. Francis in your town, in your city. And what is the way of St. Francis? St. Francis, St. Franskin, Fran, San Franskinism? Anyway, Franciscan scholar, that's what I'm trying to say. Franciscan scholar said this about being the way of St. Francis. The radically unprotected life. The way of St. Francis is a radically unprotected life a life that's cruciform in shape. I, I want to leave you with this because I think this is so powerful. Would you do me a favor? Everyone in here, this might get a little weird, but it's totally cool. Would you just open your hands like this, everyone? Let's do this. Okay. This is a cruciform life. This is how Jesus died. Radically open. Like to where you can pierce his heart with a spear almost like radically open to the world, come. And this is the way that Christ has called us to live, cruciform life, an open life to the life of the world, open to receive the pain that this world gives, but open to be vulnerable to give your life for the life of the world. This is the way of Jesus, the unprotected life. Stop protecting yourself. Stop trying to hide. Stop trying to run from what God has called you to be. Open your life up to the life of God and the life of the world. This is what you're called to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have called these people in this time to be salt and life, to live this sort of like unprotected, cruciform way of living. Thinking of 2 Corinthians where Paul says that if anyone was in Christ, they're a new creation The old is gone, the new has come, and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You reconciled us to you, and then you said, I want you to be this sort of agent of reconciliation in where you live. So I pray for those that are here and listening for the life of the coastland, that they would be ministers of reconciliation that you would send them out and rub them into all corners of the coastlands, into places of work and business and government and finance and homes and apartments on the beach, in the water, wherever they are, that you would rub them in to be salt and light into the world. And their lives would be redemptively participating for the life of the world. Give this ministry to us, Lord. Give us the ministry of reconciliation. May we feel that now. And Lord, I pray if anyone here is not reconciled to God, they don't have peace with you, that they would turn to you, they would repent, they would open their arms to you and their minds to you and their life to you and receive your forgiveness and your call to be a follower of Jesus today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.